Welcome to Chinuch 2.0, a show about the massive changes happening in how we do Chinuch, some of which may never be the same again. the topic of mental health and how it affects the way we are mechanach our children. For years, we avoided the term mental health issues because it meant to us that something is wrong. When a child has diabetes or severe allergies, that's just a medical condition. But mental health, that means that there's something really wrong with them. But Baruch Hashem, times are changing and people's attitudes as a community are shifting. I think there's a few reasons for that. Number one, we have a wonderful organization called Relief Resources who are at the forefront of referring mental health issues to the right professional for our community. And the amount of cases that they're handling at any given time is just staggering. The entire team at Relief, Sandy Orenstein, Rabbi Babad, Rabdovi Kessner, Mrs. Ricky Schwartz, and everyone else, they're doing the Eberstas work in filling this critical need for our community. And also there's been an awareness that many of these conditions are not anybody's fault. It's not a sign that something's wrong with the person. People are aware that these conditions are much more widespread than we originally thought. And a lot of these conditions are often very treatable. Doesn't necessarily mean that the child needs more discipline. An anxious kid doesn't necessarily mean that they have to get a hold of themselves. OCD is a real issue, and it has to be dealt with professionally. Our guest on this show is Dr. Lori Evans. She's a highly regarded child and adolescent psychologist at NYU for over 30 years. And she has lots of experience dealing with our from community. There's lots of good advice on this show. And all parents should listen to what she has to say and pay close attention to the information that she shares. When the school tells you that your child should see someone professionally, it's not a good idea to ignore them. They're not just doing it so that they could avoid having to discipline your child. They see other kids, and they know that your child might be suffering. You don't want Chasushan to ever have to be in a situation that you know you could have done something when there was still time, and you chose not to. There are signs of trouble to look for. As a parent, there are signs that you could look for, and you also have the sense to know when something's just not right and needs to be dealt with. We live in a time that help is just a phone call away. There's no reason to ever be ashamed to reach out for help. Let's go to our interview with Dr. Lori Evans. Thank you so much, Lori, for joining us on Chinuch 2.0. A pleasure. So you're a well-known psychologist, psychiatrist, dealing with both children and adolescents. And you've worked with a lot of from kids for many years. So... Mm -hmm. Let me just start with a general question. How do you describe the general attitude of our community towards issues of mental health, both children and adults? Are they, you find them receptive to the medical professional world on these issues? And how has that changed over time? I think it is, what is really amazing about the community is just the really the love for they have for their kids, for their family. And I think that comes through. I don't think, it is unique 
to an orthodox world that it would be hard to come for mental health services for your child because no one wants to think that their child has a problem that we need to go to a professional to address. You know, that said, I think I have seen, certainly in doing this for over 30 years, a more openness and more willingness to seek help when it's needed, you know, from even clinicians in the secular world, if that's where the expertise is, you know. Um, and I think that's the important part. I do think it is incumbent on the people working within the community to really understand some of what is needed, some of the family values, some of the religious understanding, just because it makes it easier. That would be within any community. The more we understand, the better we can serve as well. So you're saying education and having uh, public forums on the topic are things that can mm -hmm. do to make, make people more receptive to it? Sure. Okay, great. Okay, so let's get into some of the details. So a parent sees, okay. <laughs> a, parent sees a, a, a very big shift in their child's behavior, like a, a, ch a child that was very lively and outgoing and friendly, all of a sudden becomes very withdrawn and quiet. And, uh, you know, it's something that's, that, you know, that's not expected. It's an obvious change. When should they start getting alarmed and, and start being concerned that something's going on that needs help? Well, you've kind of answered your own question with the question. What we look for is any significant change in behavior. Like if there's a child and they always have a quiet disposition, but they're getting along fine. Okay. It's not being quiet. It's not being, even it's not being active. It's that's who they are. And we've been able to, it's when there is a significant change. Sometimes we can identify it as a stressor that has happened just recently. Like maybe someone has gotten ill in the family or maybe they are starting school. So we wouldn't look at that as something that would need treatment immediately. We'll see as the stressor reduces, does the behavior go back to what we would expect? Then fine, we're going to observe it for a little while. If though it is, it's the duration of that is more than you would expect. So for example, when kids are first going to school for the first time, they're going to pre-1A, of course we expect them to be anxious or nervous. And they'll always be the one or two kids in each classroom that cling a little bit more. It's not a problem if you have good mores, good redbies taking the child and really showing them that they can be safe. And then within a month, they feel fine. If you have somebody who still a few months later is struggling, then we're going to say that change in behavior, that stressor is their reaction to it is out of proportion. And so, and I, and I think that's where parents really know their kids well, that, you know, we have this old adage that we shouldn't compare kids, but that's probably wrong. We all do. You know, if you have a first child, you're not sure what quote is normal or typical. And so you may overreact to things. But once you have a number of children, you get an internal norm for like, wait a minute, something doesn't seem right. You know, um, there was a mom who describes her ADHD child. Then she said to the pediatrician, you know, my child just seems overactive compared to my other three boys. And of course, at that time, it was a while ago, the pediatrician said, he'll grow out of it. He'll be fine. Well, he didn't grow out of it. But that mom knew something was different. You know, something was up. So there's a sixth so we, sense that parents have? I think for a lot of parents, they do. You know, that doesn't mean it is very rare, although I love the parent who comes in and I'm able to say, really, there's not 
nothing significantly wrong with your child. You know, that that is wonderful. We don't always get to say that because by the time they get to us, that there may be something going on. But that said, even if there is nothing significantly wrong, but they are anxious and worried or concerned, sometimes they may just need some parenting skills you know, so that they feel more confident with their parenting. And the good thing is about psychology or an evaluation that way is there's no pain involved. You know, this is not like we have to take blood tests or do, you know, EEGs or things that for the most part, the evaluation is fun. Kids come in, they see we have lots of toys, you know, we play, we do this. So it's not an aversive thing for the most part. And if you find out a little bit more about your child, it's not a bad thing. But again, it's not, you don't have to come in just because all of a sudden your child is crying a little bit. The other part is to really understand what developmentally is appropriate in kids. You know, if a parent called me and said, you know, I have a two-year-old and they have tantrums and I would say, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> why are you calling? You know, because that's developmentally expected. They may say, I need help handling it, or it seems a lot worse or more intense. Okay, then we might think about something. But as long as we know developmentally what kids are supposed to do as well, you know, um, I did have a parent who said to me, my child is not reading in their five. And I said, that's really good. That's fine. They don't need to read at five. So sometimes it's just knowing what's expected. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just as a follow-up to this, mm-hmm. is, is something, let's say if the, a lot of times the school will alert parents to issues. You know, we see a very, a very, very changed behavior or something serious that right. needs to be addressed. But is that, is that something parents should rely on? Like if the school's not saying anything, then my child's probably okay. Do you ever have a situation where there is something serious going on, but in this, even the school's not able to realize that? Yeah, I think for sure that there are different types of problems that we deal with, that sometimes schools are better at recognizing them and sometimes parents are better at recognizing them. So for example, we have kids who might be selectively mute in school, meaning they're uncomfortable, they don't talk in school, but there are chatterboxes at home. So often when parents hear that from the school, they're like, oh, my kid talks all the time, it's perfectly fine. But wait, if they're not talking in school, it is an issue. you know. However, there might be sometimes when we have an anxious kid who is who looks really appropriate in school because they're not disruptive, they're not causing trouble, they may be exceptionally quiet. And that may be a teacher's dream. They're doing their work, but they're quiet. But parents may know that that child is really anxious going to school or worries about doing their homework perfectly. You know, so I think there are some things that parents might notice, some things that schools might notice. On that note, what I would say is sometimes parents worry that teachers may be overreacting to a child. And part of what I say to them is that, you know, teachers work very, very hard. And the last thing they want to do in the evening is call a parent and say that the child is having more trouble than they would expect. So if they're doing that, there's probably something going on. That doesn't mean it's a psychiatric or psychological issue. But again, if a teacher has a classroom of 25, 30 kids and they're calling you, something's going on that we want to find out more about. So t- take those calls seriously. Seriously. Yeah. Okay. What should parents do when it's time to see a professional? Like if it's something that, that you know, that they, they, they realize is a problem 
Are they just supposed to take the school's recommendation? Like, what should they do? What are the steps that they should do? So I think that gets, again, it depends on, you know, where you're living. And if you're living near, you know, maybe you're living near um, a major hospital center. Maybe you're not. But I think sometimes we get recommendations from pediatricians who are often the first line of people that parents see. So pediatricians will have lots of referrals. If you need, if you're near a major medical center like you know CHOP or NYU, or they might be the best place to call and ask you know where to start. Because what you want is if you're bringing your child in, you know, and sometimes parents get distressed because there's a lot of paperwork. We ask for a lot of forms beforehand. We ask for you know questionnaires. Yet. If you are coming to me and you think there is an issue with your child, you want to make sure that I am not going to treat one thing when it's really another thing, because there are so many things that overlap. In other words, like just because I can't concentrate and I can't attend, everybody may think, oh, the child has ADHD. But the attention and concentration can be impaired if you're anxious, if you're depressed, if you're ADHD, if, you know, almost all the disorders have that symptom with it. So what we want to do is you want to make sure that you're getting a really complete evaluation so that, again, that does not mean that things don't change over time or that we always have the definitive answer, but we want to be able to say with relative certainty that I have asked all the questions and this seems to account for the behavior because we know that there are evidence-based treatments for different types of issues. And we wanna make sure we're giving people the best treatment. I think for parents, it really is about being an educated consumer. They should never be afraid to ask questions of the psychologist, the psychiatrist. In other words, like how many people have you treated with these same problems? What is it gonna look like? Will I be involved in treatment? Will I know what's going on? You know, these are things that parents sometimes think when they're going to, you know, a doctor that they shouldn't ask, but they should. They should be, this is this is something they wanna know all about. They should write down their questions before you know, and, and ask, because then they're going to feel more comfortable. Because when you think about it, they're giving, I look at it as a gift when someone is going to entrust me with their child to help. So they want to know, can I trust this person? Will this person answer my questions? You know, and I think that to me is the essential part to make sure that a parent knows they're allowed to ask a myriad of questions. And there's nothing wrong with that. So, the, the, what about the, is the child's regular pediatrician someone who's like even qualified to answer the question if they need to see some someone more professional, someone who specializes in these issues? Um, yes, and you know <laughs> what I'd like to say is you know sometimes I feel terrible for pediatricians because the average visit for a pediatric visit is like seven and a half visit seven and a half minutes. Right. So. I've also asked them, could you screen for developmental milestones, make sure they don't have autism? Could you do all that in seven and a half minutes? And do you mind vaccinating and making them healthy? <laughs> um, so they have a lot to do. That said, usually established pediatric practices have a, you know, a list of referrals that they have used over the years that parents have given them feedback. Of course, in the community too, I often say, you know, call relief. Really? Because they vet people like better than anyone I've ever seen. So that's a good place to start as well. 
Right. Shout out to Relief for setting up this interview. We we have to thank them. (laughs) Always, always. But yeah, but it's also important, I I would imagine, it's probably also important that the, the, the medical professional have some some familiarity with the with the community, with the, the culture of the community, just so that they know the setting that the child is is in. Right, I think that's so important because you know at NYU I run the training program for psychologists, and you know what happens when you don't know things, you make assumptions that can really negatively impact a family. So, for example, I may expect my you know. Um, if they're not Jewish, they may be working on a Friday till seven and they don't understand why a family won't come in at two in the afternoon on a Friday, mm-hmm. you know, basic things like that. The wait, you have to understand what are the constraints that have nothing to do with an old fashioned notion in psychology, like resistance. They're not being resistant. They can't come, you know, or when we are doing a treatment and we have wait a minute, but what about a large family experience here? Or when we're treating OCD, we may need to consult with the the rabbi and the family to make sure that some of the exposures we're going to do are appropriate, you know? So I think it's really important for all clinicians to be trained, to understand the culture, to understand. And again, that doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. We're not going to step on toes, but that's where at least if you have a basic working knowledge and a respect, people will also teach you. I've learned as much from my patients as I've taught them. So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you have to have the right attitude for that. You do. <laughs> yeah, that, that's very special. Okay. So I've heard, we've heard from a lot of educators, you know, a lot of, we've interviewed many of, I've heard from, from others anecdotally that anxiety is a very big issue that a lot of kids face. And that it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a real debilitating condition. And when parents hear that their child suffers from anxiety, they, they themselves get anxious. What does that mean? So, <laughs> so I'm sure that's like a very common question. Like, whoa, whoa, is there something wrong with my child? Are they, are they permanently handicapped? So you know, talk a little bit about it so that we could, you know, people should be aware so, of, what's, of what it is. The good thing about anxiety and anxiety treatment, and that's why so many clinicians like to treat anxiety, because anxiety is incredibly treatable. In other words, and, and I think what parents need to know is that everyone has to experience anxiety. So we talk about it as an optimal amount of anxiety. If I didn't have any anxiety, I would never write my notes to get my reports done, you know, but I know I have to. So I have a little bit of anxiety to get that done. What happens when we have too much anxiety, often we may freeze, we may not get it done at all. So the issue with anxiety, there are many anxiety disorders. So some kids may, when they're young, we talked a little bit about this idea of separation anxiety, that it is not a normative thing if you can't adjust to being separated from your caregiver with support and those kind of things in place. Then you can have social anxiety. So in other words, that you may be very talkative, very friendly, but in a social situation, you may become almost paralyzed because you may be, you fear you're not going to do something just right, or you're going to embarrass yourself. Um, And then there are the kids who we talk about with the generalized anxiety. These are the worriers. They worry about the world changing. They worry about, you know, everything's going to go bad and what are we going to do? And they experience that they can't control it. It's uncomfortable. And one of the things that you said that's really important is when we hear our kid has anxiety, we get anxious. Sometimes kids come by this honestly. So there may be some inherited components to anxiety, but there also may be some learned behaviors because when parents are anxious, 
kids get anxious. You know, the example is, you know, you see kids in the playground and some kids fall in there and mom might go, oh, you're okay, you're okay. And they look at the mom, they see they're okay and they run off. As opposed to the mom who's like, oh, my child fell, you have to come over here. If they're anxious, the child may learn anxiety as well. So often the treatment involves parents being able to tolerate some of their own anxiety. The good thing is anxiety with treatment, with family treatment, with work with the schools can get better and kids can learn to manage their anxiety. The distressing thing for kids is when they come in there anxious and I say, well, you always have anxiety. That's what saves you. You need some anxiety. You just don't need as much as you have, you know? And so I think parents can rest assured with something like anxiety. There are effective treatments out there. And that, again, that it can get within a normal level if the work is done right. Okay, great. You know, now after after this whole uh, period of the pandemic for over a year, and, and kids were out of school for a long time. So we're finding a lot, a lot of teachers, I'm hearing from teachers and other professionals, that kids are like avoiding school. They're the, for any excuse because they saw that school was kind of like optional sure. <laughs> over the past year. <laughs> it's so, not? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they're having a hard time. With, and, and school could be a difficult environment for kids, you know, especially yeah. uh, like we, we spoke about the anxious kids. So how do, we, how do you deal with that? How do, we, how do we get kids to, you know, realize that school is a very important part of their life? Well, and, I think what you're talking about is just that's where we struggle because we, we used to be able to say you must go to school. School is, you know, five days a week, you have to go, you know, and then all of a sudden this year, well, even when you're going back, maybe you could do Zoom school. So if you were out a day, okay, you could still do school. Like I have kids now who are saying, I'm not going to school, but I'm going to go on Zoom school. So it's okay. It's okay. And I think what we have to do is realize that this is a reentry. We have to be understanding and gradual, but then both parents and teachers have to set clear limits and expectations. You know, that said, it may mean just like you've been talking to educators, they're worried. So it may just be like, a flexible kind of re-entry, but think about it. Even that, I saw lots of people were posting like first day of school pictures and we're in April. You know, like kids have not been. So any change is gonna be difficult for them. Just like the beginning of the pandemic, being home and locked home was really hard. We get kind of used to something and then we're changing it. We're also making those changes somewhat at the end of a school year. You know, so in some ways, it's nice to do that now where they'll get gradually used to it. And by September, they're coming in full time. Everybody's together again, or that, at least that's my hope. Um, but I think it's not unusual when there is a change, just like we started out saying, is that when there is any change in the environment, the kids may respond. So, again, some kids loved this pandemic because they were anxious kids. Socially, they were having problems. They thrived. They're, I'll stay home. I'll be with my siblings, all good. You know, for other kids, it was really difficult for them to be home. You know, they were disruptive. They were active because they craved school. So I think it's not an unusual thing that we're seeing. We're going to ask for teachers to be understanding, yet clear in their limits, and parents to be the same thing you would do when you were first taking your kid to school. You know, we're going to deal with this. You're going to be okay in school. School is safe. And yes, you have to go. You know, and it's a hard thing because they really don't want to, you know. Um, but I would think as soon as we decrease that choice of online school, we'll see a return to baseline. That's good.
behavior issues. So uh, that's a big one, right? Well, <laughs> kids nightmare, <laughs> parents nightmare, right? So yeah. kids just very misbehaved. They fight at home, they fight in school, uh, defiant, they're always getting kicked out of class. At what point do we say, okay, this is not, this is not normal. This is something that needs more professional help. Or is it just the kid's nature? They're just a difficult child. You know, they may be just a difficult child. That's possible. Um, but I think, again, you're going to hear from the school. They're fighting in school or, you know, they're fighting with their siblings, but they're fighting more than the other kids. So that it is, you know, we talk about three factors, frequency, intensity, and duration. So if they're doing it more frequently than you would expect, a kid who fights once a month, okay, no one's calling me. You know, if the intensity is just like they they give their sibling a potch, okay, you know, it's a duration. Or when they get upset, they are lasting, it lasts for hours, or they get in a bad mood. You know, if it is impacting their learning, so they go to school and, okay, so they get sent out of the classroom for two minutes and come back. But then if their teacher is saying to them, you know what? this kid is missing out on academics because they're out of the classroom or they're the kids don't like this child anymore because they have tried, they tried to be nice, but it didn't work. You know? So I think again, no parent says to me, or at least I haven't heard, you know what, go to school, get yourself in trouble, make sure I get a call before 11. You know, they all say, go to school, be good, follow the rules, you know, and the kid always says, I will, I will, I will. And then who knows what happens before 11. But I think in some ways, that's where schools and parents can work together. Because sometimes parents have found things that are effective with their child. You know, my child really responds when they get a little more labeled praise from the teacher. My kid really responds when you give him activity breaks. You know, so I think it's about working as a team. And that's part of, if you have a disruptive child and you're coming in for treatment and the problem is in school, we want to make sure that a lot of the work is done with the school personnel as well. And it's not a useful thing. So you can behave in my office. That's great. And I'll send you home. We really have to work with everybody to make sure we can make some improvements in those areas. Very important that the school has to be accommodating (laughs) and and want to help. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so so a lot of parents fear the, the giving a child medication when it's needed. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of stigma attached to medication. There's a f- fear of side effects. There's a fear that the child will never get off of it. H- how can you clear that up or talk more about it? Well, I love talking about this only because since I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, I feel like I don't medicate anyone. So the truth of the matter is that if you know, I wish that my behavioral interventions, my therapy would fix all kids and you never needed medication. That would be great. I would be wealthy. Every family would be happy. However, um, I think I respect any family that really takes pause before they give their child medication because they should. This is a big decision. It is a serious decision. That said, when we look at different disorders, so if you have a you know, adolescent who is anxious or depressed, but it is only mild to moderate, the recommendation is to do a course of cognitive behavioral therapy before we would even try medication. You know, if on the flip side, you have a child who is coming in severely depressed or suicidal, that we know that the combination of treatment is going to help. I think where parents, usually what they're coming in for is they have a disruptive child. We diagnose attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and then there is a recommendation for medication. 
And the recommendation is for stimulant medication because what the research has showed us over the past 30 years is for those core symptoms, the inattention, the hyperactivity, and the impulsivity, that medication is really the treatment of choice. Mm-hmm. That said, it's still, this is a stimulant medication. So it is, you know, it can be exceptionally effective, but parents worry, is it going to keep my kid up at night? You know, is it going to decrease their appetite? Is it going to make them not who they are? And that's where I say the job of the parent is if they're considering medication, just like you would with a therapist, you have to really be comfortable with the psychiatrist so you can ask all these questions about safety and efficacy, that you're going to do a trial of medication and see what is effective and what is not. And it is going to be monitored exceptionally closely because that's what I think parents are fearful of. Now with ADHD, we know it's generally a chronic condition. So kids might need medication. We also know that with behavioral interventions and sometimes gifted teachers, that kids need less medication sometimes when the environment can be more structured and more helpful. And with the question of whether kids should, or they'll be on it forever, most good psychiatrists, if kids are doing well, We'll try decreasing the medication. We'll see if we need it anymore. And that's where parents have to advocate as well. You know, my child's been on this medication. They're doing well. The Rebbe is saying they're the best in the class. Okay, so let's try to decrease it. You know, I think in some ways, though, when a medication is indicated, I wouldn't want to withhold it from a child because we talk about that label of being medicated. But many kids who have untreated ADHD get labeled as lazy, sometimes as bad, sometimes even as not so intelligent when none of those are the accurate things. So I think, you know, parents should be very careful and there's lots of information out there. And that's where going to someone they can talk to and ask the questions for, for sure. You know, I think sometimes parents, when you go to the anxiety or mood medications and you're talking the um, SSRIs or the antidepressants, that's where sometimes parents also say, you know, how will we know if it's working? How will we know if it's enough? And again, that's where you want to work with your psychiatrist really closely. You're going to have questionnaires that you're going to take data on in the beginning. The adolescent may be filling out those questionnaires to make sure that we're seeing progress. You would do that in cognitive behavioral treatment, but also with medication. And I think when parents feel like they are partners in that, then they feel more comfortable. So it's not someone dictating them. That said, if I have a parent who says, I absolutely will not put my child on medication for ADHD, I will work with them. And we will, you know, I often will say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set goals that let's see what's happening in three to four months, 12 to 16 weeks. If we're not making progress, we're going to revisit other options, you know, Um, and that's, we make choices and it is hard. And I certainly understand parents' hesitation and they can also probably more kids than they know are taking medication and doing well on it. We don't necessarily put out a poster. You know, so. <laughs> exactly. Right. If the parents would only know how many other kids are taking the medication, right? <laughs> it would be so much easier. But are you saying that for anxiety and OCD, where there's, you know, with, with those type of conditions, that there's, there's less of a push towards medication in the initial, the initial treatment? Right. I think, I think, again, it depends on the level of severity. 
So if someone comes to me with a mild to moderate case of OCD, we're going to try exposure and response prevention first. And again, just like I said, with even with ADHD, let's see if this works. Um, if it is exceptionally severe, like there are a child can't get out of the house because of their OCD, or they are, you know, stuck within their bed or they can't get dressed in the morning. If it's that severe, we might recommend from the start a combination, because if we can't even get them out of the house to treatment or engage in treatment, we may need more. But the mild to moderate, we'll try a course of treatment first. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so this this is a big question. Okay. In our community, especially, the Orthodox community, we're very close-knit. Everyone knows each other. So mm-hmm. there's a very strong aversion towards issues of mental health, especially when it comes to Shaduchim, right? They're getting married. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, people are especially afraid, oh, they have mental health, stay far away. Is, that's why oftentimes you'll hear horror stories of people getting married. They didn't realize that there was something there because people were just afraid to say. They, they, it would just derail any chance of them getting married. Are these fears justified? Like, is that something that people should be very afraid? Oh, mental health, like definitely stay away. What, what can you say that could make people even be less concerned about these issues? Do you know, I have to tell you what I believe is that even in the secular world, it, there is a stigma against significant mental illness. And that if a prospective family knew that someone had a serious mental illness, they might run away too. So, you know, you, I think your community might be more aware because of the close-knit nature of it. You know, that said, I do not think there needs to be as big a fear of it because if someone is treated, I would, yes, I would be very concerned if someone, for example, had bipolar disorder, was not getting treatment for it and had manic and depressive episodes. It might be very hard to be in a loving relationship or to be a parent with that person. That said, bipolar disorder is very treatable with medication and treatment. So if someone is being treated, you know, I think we all would like the perfect spouse. That's what we're all going for. And that's what we want for our children, no matter what community you're in. That said, I think if someone has taken the brave step and gotten treatment and is open and upfront about it, that the fear need not be as high. And I think just like you were saying before, if they knew who else was like taking medication, you know, I think the more important part is to move to a place where it's not a problem if you have have a disorder, but how much treatment you've gotten, how you've gotten past it, you know, and that's really what the issue is. You know, um, but do I understand the concern? Sure, because if I knew, you know, my child might have anxiety or might have, but like we said, we know that it is more common than anyone ever thought. So my guess is better better know it up front and be okay with it. So how are we supposed to know if it was treated properly? Like, uh, could we, obviously there's HIPAA issues, <laughs> disclosure. No, we're not, how I are we wouldn't suggest to getting medical records. But you know what? I think that's where over time, what I'm hoping is even within the community that we can talk about it. When, you know, a family says, yes, you know, my child has ADHD, but, you know, notice he or she is very successful and they are coping with it well. And they were on medication from the time. I think the more honest we are, but yeah, will we always know? No, you know, I don't think that's ever your, but I think it's more, um, 
in the world getting more used to it, you know, and there are things just like, you know, yes, if my spouse has diabetes, I would want to know as much as I could to make sure that I'm cooking correctly, to make sure that their, you know, insulin is available to, if they need help monitoring their A1C, but I wouldn't say, oh, I can't marry someone that way. I just want to know because then I can help as well. You know, um, if I'm going to marry someone who has ADHD, I want to make sure that I'm going to be very structured and organized because they may not be. You know, um, if I want to marry someone who is anxious, I'm going to make sure I'm just calm and I've got my skills so we can deal with this. That's really the goal. But again, that's going to take a while longer because people, people, there is no matter what we do, there still seems to be a stigma. Okay. Mm-hmm. One last question. I've kept you long enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is there one thing that, that as parents can have the biggest impact on, on being able to raise happy, well-adjusted kids, well-adjusted kids who are, who are able to grow up and raise and, and face the challenges that life brings us? Do you know what? I think the real take-home message is something I said in the beginning. It is that strong sense of community and family. And that is what's going to help. Yes, treatment is great. Medications may work. CBT is wonderful. But you know what? I always go back to the story. We had a gentleman who at age 21 came to NYU and gave us Grand Rounds, which is this big you know, thing in front of 50, 60 doctors with high degrees. And why he was coming at 21, he was telling us that when he was younger, he was someone who got in trouble in school every single week. He was taken to the principal's office. He was sent home. He got in trouble all around. And what saved him was that no matter what he had done, every Friday afternoon, his mother took him and they went to the park or they went to the zoo. And that was what saved him, not some psychologist or psychiatrist, but that loving relationship he had with his mother, that no matter what happened, they were going to be there for him. And I think that's really the message that, yes, you should get good treatment. It is out there. Be a good consumer. And, yeah, just we're all different and we all have different strengths and weaknesses and understand that as well. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. This is great. I know parents are, are really going to use this information and hopefully raise their kids well. I hope so. <laughs> You've been listening to Chinuch 2.0, a show exploring the changes happening to how we do Chinuch. Chinuch 2.0 is hosted and produced by me, Aaron Parks. You can subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts or on our website, chinuchshow.com. For suggestions, comments, or guest ideas, please visit chinuchshow.com. Thanks for listening.